But what this does is it warms the poles. So there's less focused cold at the north. And, and so the poles are warming two to three times more than the rest of the planet. And this is potentially disastrous because there's lots of frozen methane in the permafrost and under the ocean from decayed matter, uh, decayed organic matter over thousands of years that's been frozen there for forever. And this is all going to bubble to the surface because of heating and it's going to be released from the permafrost. Right now, Siberia is burning because they had a 100 degree temperature and the, the permafrost, which is full of methane, is basically melting and, and it's become a giant barbecue. Andy Vasily. Hi, everybody. Welcome to my Run Your Life podcast. And as always, I want to thank you for taking the time to listen to any episode that you can. The whole purpose behind my podcast is to interview people from the world of education and beyond who strive for both personal and professional excellence in their life through their chosen profession, whatever that profession may be. Uh, Today's episode is a very unique one. It is the first time that I have ever had a scientist on my show, and not just any scientist, but actually a childhood friend who I recently reunited with. His name is Dr. Al Scott, and Al and I have known each other. We figured out uh, before we recorded that we have known each other since about 1976. So it has been a very long time that we've known each other. Even though Al and I have known each other for decades, we fell out of touch after high school, and even though we were connected by Facebook, we didn't really communicate or stay in touch. However, I knew that Al was doing some pretty amazing work in the field of science, so it was interesting to see some of his posts and to see some of the work that that he was doing. Uh, Recently, it was a, a couple months ago, I saw Al had posted something on Facebook that he was starting up his own podcast, which seemed very interesting. Um, The podcast is called The Rational View, and I'm just going to read a little uh, description of what it is. The Rational View is a weekly podcast series providing a rational, evidence-based perspective on important societal issues. Al hopes to provide a clear voice for the moderate majority on highly polarized issues such as climate change, social inequity, and the growth of anti-science sentiment. So that kind of piqued my curiosity, and I reached out to Al, and we started up this conversation about podcasting because, as you know, I have my own podcast. So we actually hooked up on Zoom. He told me about his podcast, and I've listened to every episode since. The first episode came out on June 19th. Really interesting stuff. And I've never considered myself somebody really interested in science, but the way Al presents his podcast and the way he presents the themes and topics that he discusses is really interesting. And he approaches it with curiosity and he presents his work in a way that um, even though I'm a non-science person, I really find a lot of value in what he's sharing. And I'm learning quite a bit from each episode. Al currently works in the Canadian space industry, focusing on the development of optical remote sensing instruments for scientific satellite experiments. Pretty interesting work. In this episode, I get Al to kind of dig deep into the purpose of his podcast, and he shares some insight into each of the episodes that he has released so far. Uh, I highly recommend you, you give this podcast a chance. If you know people who are interested in science or if you're a teacher, a science teacher, I highly recommend that you tune in to Al's podcast. Al covers a wide range of topics and themes on his podcast, such as nuclear energy, income inequality, how to effectively debate creationists, climate change, closing the wage gap and the family gap, etc., 
but there's lots of interesting themes that he discusses on this podcast, and he shares some of that uh, in this episode today. It was great to reconnect with Al and have him on the podcast to share um, what his podcast is all about and to learn more about his work. So with that, let's jump right into my discussion with Dr. Al Scott. Okay, Al, it's great to have you on the show and to give my listeners some context here. Uh, you and I go way back. We were just talking about it before we hit record. Um, we went to kinder, well, kinder grade one together at, at one school. Then we went to the same elementary school from grade two to grade eight, which would have been, we just figured out, 1976 to 1982. So you and I have known each other a long time. Welcome very to the long. show, man. <laughs> Thank you very much for inviting me. Um, pleasure to be on here um yeah it's a it's a long ways back <laughs> yeah and and i we were just recalling some of those memories and um i wanted to ask because one of the things i i do remember about you we hung out a bit throughout the throughout elementary school and that's right um one of the things i do remember about you clearly when i found out that you were a scientist it did not surprise me at all because i remember <laughs> uh how good you were in math and science and, and language. And I remember you always being one of the best students in the class. So it doesn't surprise me that you ended up doing what you were doing. But one of the things I wanted to ask you about was why science? Well, first of all, let's just give people some background into who you are and okay. uh, where you grew, grew up and what your current job title is. Sure. So I'm Dr. Al Scott. Uh, my background, I come from Southern Ontario, uh, just like you, uh, grew up on a small apple farm, Scott brothers, uh, farm growing apples. Um, we went to school together. I ended up, uh, going into science and, you know, I, I didn't really know what I wanted to do in high school. And, and you're kind of thrust with this decision as to what you want to do. And I was, you know, I, I had this burning curiosity. I wanted to know you know, what do we know as humanity? What is it? What are the limits of our knowledge? I wanted to know. So it was kind of a, an exploration for me. And also, you know, I worked a lot of hot summers in Southern Ontario and decided that maybe I didn't want to do that the rest of my life. <laughs> so, um, went into physics, uh, in university of Guelph. And, uh, that was, that was cool. It was interesting. And at the end of my Bachelor of Physics, I found that, you know, there's not many jobs looking for a Bachelor of Physics. So I said, okay, maybe uh, grad school is for me then. So uh, I continued on and did a PhD at the University of Waterloo in, in astrophysics. Uh, and that was a, a great time in my life. And I, I've always been, you know, um, I, be, I became an advocate for science because uh, um, I, I enjoy uh, learning about things. And I, you know, I've learned, you know, the, that science is, is very good way of learning about the universe. It's, it's the way that all of our knowledge of the universe has come about is through the process of science. Science is a, is a process, uh, not a collection of facts. It's a way to learn. Uh, and it seems like it's the best way to learn that, uh, that we have and in that it actually produces technology that, that works. So after that, uh, I went into, uh, after my PhD, I got a job in the Canadian space industry. Uh, I got hired by Cal Corporation or Canadian Astronautics up here in Ottawa, which is where I am now. And uh, they were building star trackers for, for satellites. And basically, these are instruments that image the stars and tell the satellite which direction it's pointing. Uh, and so I worked with them for several years and worked with a lot of different scientists. It's actually an ideal job from coming from a PhD in physics because I basically was working with all of the scientists in Canada that wanted to build uh, remote sensing instruments for to do experiments in space. So it was really cool. I got to you know work on hardware that got sent into space, and I was working still in science and kind of helping these. Uh, academics to know how to put hardware in space so that it would survive the harsh radiation and that sort of thing. Uh, 
So it was an ideal job. And we, we became EMS Technologies and then we became ComDev and now we're Honeywell. Uh, so every, every five years or so, we seem to change hands, but it's still the same group of people. And it's a great, a great broad-based kind of career because I get to touch on a lot of different fields that I would not, from an academic standpoint, would not have been able to do. When you, when you go into a, an academic field as a PhD, you become very tightly focused and very deep in that particular field. Uh, but in my industry job, I get to touch on an amazingly broad field with a lot less depth. So uh, it's it's jack of all trades versus master of one. Um, hey, Al, so I, what, what, what are some of those, sorry to interrupt, but what are some of those other fields that have interwoven into your journey in, in education? I say your journey in education because you are a life lifelong learner. And that's what science is, right? It's, it's constant learning. And with all the new information, you know, coming at us and changing all of the time, you're constantly in a position to have to continue your learning journey, of course. So what are those other fields that come into play? It's been quite interesting. When I started, I was looking at um, technology issues, um, you know, how do detectors, how do cameras work in space under harsh radiation. So it was really semiconductor physics type stuff, which was, you know, my forte at the time. Um, but it evolved. I, and from working with different uh, researchers in the field, um, we, I worked with a group at York University who were um, climate scientists, uh, and they were building um, instruments that would monitor the environment and measure uh, concentrations of ozone in the stratosphere. At the time, there was the ozone hole was a big issue, and um, the Montreal Protocol was uh, just new, and they wanted to monitor to see the ozone hole closing, and they wanted to measure winds in the stratosphere with these things to measure um, some of the effects of climate change. So I got to work with those people, and through that work, I was uh, I made an adjunct professor at uh, York University, and uh, I retained that uh, title. It's it's mainly an honorary title. It allows me to work with grad students and supervise and, and uh, do a little bit of academic work on the side. And then uh, after that, I, you know, I was always involved with the Canadian Space Agency because they were in the main funding agency for science instruments at the time in Canada. And uh, I through that, through the workshops that they, they held at the Canadian Space Agency on space exploration, uh, I was introduced to uh, a prof, uh, Mike Dixon, at University of Guelph, which is where I did my undergrad work. And he has got a really cool setup there where he's growing plants uh, and trying to determine the sort of minimum life support system that you need to grow plants for a future uh, lunar or Mars habitat. So like oh, wow. like that, that movie... Uh, uh, when they're on Mars and they're growing potatoes, yeah. uh, that's the, the sort of thing that they're doing there at Guelph. And they're, they're, you know, learning, you know, how low you can turn down the pressure, how much oxygen, how much carbon dioxide, how much water vapor, all these things that you need to grow plants. And it's basically uh, looking at closing the loop on uh, recycling everything. It's what is the minimum ecological uh, support system you need uh, to maintain life. So it's got great secondary benefits in terms of uh, low footprint agriculture, because obviously you can't waste any resources and you want to minimize resupply. You want to be independent effectively. So this line of research is very interesting, especially in Canada, where we have you know, isolated remote communities in the north that are shipping food from Mexico and California year round. Uh, if there's a, a shipping interruption, these communities are, are, you know, could be isolated and could have food shortages. And it's the same uh, sort of problem that you have on the moon or Mars. So if you can grow your own food in these um, enclosed hydroponic chambers using low, uh, low power LED lighting, uh, you can become self-sufficient. And, and that's sort of where that research was going. It was really interesting stuff. We worked on it for several years. And I even wrote a roadmap for the Canadian Space Agency on how to you know, build a greenhouse on the moon in oh, 20 wow. years. 
So, so cool. When you, when you describe that, Alan, I just want to take a quick time out here because we're at a science and technology university here that is doing some amazing research. And I, I met a researcher from India and we were at a, a social gathering and I said, tell me about your work. And he basically said that from the time he was young, he fell in love with playing in the soil and learning about soil, which led to him studying soil in university, which led to him coming here as a researcher. And he has an invention that he created a few years ago, um, which is taking, you know, in, in the desert areas, what they often do is they, they put plastic on the ground to trap in uh, moisture, right? Mm-hmm. So he created a machine that essentially you can take a shovel full of sand, dump it in the machine, and um, he created a biodegradable wax that coats every single grain of sand, right? So that out comes this bio, um, this, this um, wax-coated sand that is then used as topsoil on the ground and it traps in moisture. So then they started planting crops and, and he gives the crops away. I mean, amazing tomatoes, massive tomatoes and watermelons and all of these different crops. But he just talking to him about his work and how passionate he was about it. And he's now trying to um, bring the project to different parts of Africa and to create these machines that that farmers can lease so that they they can be more efficient in the way they they farm so they're not as reliant on on other uh, industries or you know as you said shipping food across the country right so that they can be self-sustaining but very fascinating work yeah i mean you might be interested to know the the work that uh, mike dixon uh at guelph um was doing uh, he basically um, installed some of his experimental chambers in uh, a research uh, facility in Kuwait. Oh, wow. uh, so the Kuwait uh, science ministry is, is using that technology to grow food in the desert. Yeah, it's pretty fascinating work. So, so it sounds like through your, through your years of experience in the field, you, you come across lots of different, um, as you say, lots of different fields of interest in regards to science, right? And, yeah, for sure. and, and how it's kind of developed your passion for um, learning more about science. But in particular, I, I would love to dive into um, your podcast, but before getting there, um, have you worked directly with uh, Canadian astronauts? Uh, I I haven't worked directly with the Canadian astronauts. Uh, an interesting anecdote, my graduate work at uh, University of Waterloo, uh, my supervisor uh, was the same as uh, astronaut Steve McLean's supervisor. He was one of the earlier astronauts in Canada and went on to become president of the Canadian Space Agency. But Steve McLean was kind of my laboratory predecessor. So I was using his hand-me-down equipment in the lab uh, when I was doing my astrophysics PhD. Oh, very cool. And have you read the book, um, An Ast- Astronaut's Guide to Life on Earth by Hatfield? Uh, I have, yeah, yeah. That's, uh, it, it, he's, a, he's been a great um, ambassador for, for space exploration and, and manned space. Um, really, he's done a great job in, in popularizing what's being done up there. Yeah, he's he's pretty fascinating. Um, so, yeah, I wanted to talk because I, you and I got in touch recently because I, I noticed on Facebook that you were starting your own podcast called The Rational View. And I was really interested to know more. So you and I hadn't spoken in, it had to have been more than 30 years. So we got together <laughs> yeah. on a Zoom call uh, because I have my own podcast and we started to have a conversation about your podcast and I wanted to know more about it. But it, I've listened to a number of your episodes already and I love it. And me being very much a non-science person, you have captured my interest in science, you know, and it's been really interesting hearing the way you, you present your work and you present these ideas on your podcast. And that's why I wanted to have you on the show. So yeah, just tell us a little bit about um, how you came up with the idea for the podcast and where you're getting your ideas from in relation to the episodes that you're releasing. 
Okay, sure. Then that's that's great. Um, so, you know, as I say, I've always been interested in science, and uh, I enjoy outreach. Uh, I've been involved with the local uh, Royal Astronomical Society of Canada chapter in Ottawa for for decades now. Uh, I've I do uh, talks at their monthly meetings, popularizing uh, what's new in astronomy. Uh, but I've also um, followed along on social media and tried to be a voice for reason on social media, but it's a very frustrating uh, job, as one might say, because <clears throat> the uh, the dialogue is is often highly polarized and quickly devolves into name calling, and you seem to be fighting with with trolls all the time. Um, and you know, there's very little um, uh, positive response or feedback to that. And I thought, well, okay, I enjoy popularization. I want to make a difference. Uh, how can I best do that? And, and that's kind of what set the seeds of this podcast into my mind is, is that I could get, uh, I could centralize all of this in a, in a single podcast and, and get my views out to the world and help uh, fight against the, the decline of, of social discourse um, and maybe get some of my views on on important issues that I think science and, and evidence based uh, investigation can help with. Uh, you're you know aware of how the political discourse has kind of devolved into a shouting match between uh, two polarized groups that have completely different uh, views of the world. Uh, it's like you know we're living in the matrix. So people are are given a, a false view of the world by their chosen media. And if you have a different basis in facts from the other side, how can you possibly have a discussion? And I think a discussion is a healthy discussion is important as a route for a healthy democracy. If you can't have that, then your society is at risk of breaking down. And, you know, I can see these things snowballing and I want to do something to stop that snowballing. I want to have a place where the moderate uh, majority, the moderate silent majority can get together and have a rational discussion because I think uh, most people would agree that they have very similar wants and needs, even though they're on opposite sides of the political spectrum. People want stability. People want peace. People want their kids to grow up in a safe world and a clean world uh, we're not so far apart. It's just that, you know, we have a, a different view of reality. We have these alternate facts out here. And so I thought maybe if I could put forward something that, you know, gives people the ammunition, the understanding of what the facts really are, that maybe it would help them to approach the other side. And it's always important to, to refrain from, caricaturing your opponents and name calling these people aren't morons right a lot of so social media discussion people are just ridiculing the opposition and it breaks down into tribalism you're trying to give your side likes and and make laughy faces at the other side and that that's not going to get us anywhere so i feel like i can provide this clear rational voice for the moderate majority on highly polarized issues and, you know, important ones like climate change and social inequity and the growth of anti-science sentiment are, are high in my list of things I want to discuss and, and to popularize. And, and it's a view that you don't see uh, being um, given out by either side, by the demagogues and, and ideologues on either side. They're not talking, uh, they're not talking in a, in a respectful way to the middle. They're, you know, most of these people are out for clicks and, and, and they want um, clickbait type headlines and they want to make either fear or, or some other emotion to dominate and get more feedback. And I'm totally against that approach. I'm more trying to calm the voices and, and get people to come together and, and talk. So, Al, have you, you know, when I think of your podcast, so now you're probably in, it's been out now for less than a month, right? Your first episode was on June 19th called uh, right. What is Science? Which I love because 
it gave me insight. Well, I'm going to let you talk about that episode. Um, so talk about your first episode and how you kind of set the frame for all future episodes. Okay. Thank you. Um, yeah. So what is science? So I thought if I'm going to be bringing this, what I call a rational evidence-based viewpoint uh, in my podcast, I'd better define what I mean by rational and what uh, my understanding uh, as a scientist of science is, because I think there's, a, as I said, there's a lot of anti-scientist sentiment, anti-science sentiment in society. Scientists are, are framed as these ivory tower elites uh, and um, it's almost become commonplace to scoff at knowledge. And I want to try to turn that around a little bit. Now, science in itself is not uh, a collection of facts. It's a process to understand the universe as it presents itself to us, to make better predictions about what's going to happen. And we have science laws and science theories and science hypotheses. And the popular usage of these words is not the same as the scientific usage of these words. And I think that's where a lot of confusion comes in. If a scientist says, I, you know, I'm describing a theory. Well, if someone that you talk to says, I have a theory, like Joe down the road, his, his theory that the earth is flat is not a theory in the scientific sense. A scientific theory is, is something that's been verified uh, very well over um, many, many tests. Uh, I have a hypothesis is something that is not as well tested. It's just an idea, like, like a popular use of the word theory is a scientist's word of the use, a scientist's use of the word hypothesis. So a theory is like the theory of gravity, which is, you know, Einstein's theory of relativity, which is one of the most well-tested um, theories in the whole world. It explains just about everything in, that we see happening except for, you know, quantum mechanics. So I wanted to put these basics down and get everybody on the same page as to what science really is. And this rise of anti-science sentiment that we see, uh, I don't think it's, it's well-reasoned. I think it comes out of a, out of a fear and out of, uh, some failures of policy um, that have had negative side effects on society. Um, you know, too much trust in industries and self-regulation has caused some major um, problems over the, you know, the past 20, 20 years ago or something uh, where, you know, not enough regulation on industry resulted in some high profile disasters, for example. I think that's painted scientists in a bad light. And scientists in general are hesitant to come out and, and popularize their work and talk to the media uh, in some cases because, you know, the media often gets it wrong. And it's very difficult to take the, the narrow um, subjects that they're working on and, and make them explainable to the public by uh, simple analogies. If, if they don't have the sort of mathematical background and the sort of uh, scientific background to understand all of the basic concepts, it's, it's very difficult. And scientists, when they talk to the public, come across as uh, indecisive and nervous. And this is not a failure of them as people. When you are being uh, taught science in, in university, uh, and when you become a, a publishing scientist, you're required to present opposing viewpoints to the work that you're presenting. So if you present a theory or a hypothesis, you have to go out there and say, well, these are the ways that my hypothesis could be proved wrong. And these are the uncertainties that we don't know anything about. And this, in science, shows that you're being unbiased. But to the general public, it comes across as wishy-washy and uncertain. So I think um, the popularization of scientific findings has, has been a problem. Um, and that's something that I wanted to try to get across. And we see this a lot right now in, in responding to the COVID uh, crisis. Scientific bodies like the World Health Organization have come out with contradictory advice over the past months on 
what you, you did an uh, episode. Doing. Yeah, you you had done an episode on COVID actually. That's right. Yeah, yeah. You know, on whether to wear masks or not. You know, originally they said no, masks aren't helpful, and now they say masks are very helpful. So this looks like these people are untrustworthy. But this is the process of science. We learn things. We make. Uh, we learn and. Science is continually self-improving and people don't realize that science can be wrong. Science never proves anything. You don't ever prove anything. What you do is you build up evidence for one interpretation over another. So it's a, it's a process of building up evidence. So if anyone says science proves something, they are fibbing. Science builds up evidence for uh, different differential uh, interpretations of theories. So, if one theory has more evidence than the other, then it becomes the, the baseline understanding. This is our best uh, idea of what actually is happening. And uh, something with, with less evidence then is, is not as favored. And, and people can come out and, you know, just due to statistics, if they're doing a test, sometimes the, the wrong answer will come up as the correct answer in a, t in a, in a paper. And they'll publish this. But it doesn't mean it's dogma. It doesn't mean it's proven. It's just an evidence point. And from a scientist's point of view, you say, oh, that's interesting. Let's wait and see if anyone can replicate that. And that's one of the, the, the backbones of science is replication. If, if nobody can replicate it, then it's maybe a statistical fluke, or maybe they didn't correct, control all their variables well enough. It's when you have a massive replication of a, a single result that you then start having uh, appropriate levels of confidence in that result. And I think that is a difficult thing for the public to understand is that, you know, it's not, it's not dogma at any time. There are always uncertainties and it, 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 uh, it can approach the truth in a kind of an asymptotic way, if you will. And what I like about your podcast is you, you bring this very calm, well-paced discussion. Uh, I mean, it's just you at this point, you haven't brought any guests on, but um, I really like the way that you present ideas, dispel myths, and build people's understanding of some of these themes or topics that you're discussing. So take people through. So how many episodes do you have so far out there? I have uh, eight episodes published right now. Okay. So let's just, because it's only eight, we can probably just go through them. So the first one was, what is science? And then... And then uh, COVID-19, what the heck? Uh, that was my, my second one. Just, you know, I know there's a lot of fear and uncertainty out there. And I wanted to, you know, just say, look, this is what we know. And as, as, um, as science progresses, it's going to be dated very quickly, I think. But at the time, I thought it was very important to, to actually say something about that. Yeah. My third podcast is... The other guys are not idiots. Not is in brackets. And this is one about um, debate and um, being respectful and not caricaturing your opponents. Uh, and I realizing that most of us live in these social media echo chambers mm -hmm. uh, and bringing the tools of science to question your own biases and reach out to the other side. That was the basis of this. And I also mentioned, you know, Dunning-Kruger effect and, and some of these other things that, that may explain, you know, some of the leaders, you know, basically what, what this says is that we have leaders that, that we believe in because they sound very confident. And a lot of cases, people sound very confident because they are working against a caricature of what they think their opponents are saying. And only when you have a little bit of humility, um, when you've learned that maybe your initial caricature was wrong, are you at the point where you should be talking about the issues? Yeah. And some people will, will spout off, uh, you know, based on their initial caricature. And these are, you know, these tend to be our leaders. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I can think of one in particular that I won't mention, but, um, um, and then your fourth one was about closing the wage gap and the family gap. So give us a little summary of that. Yeah. So, um, 
this one I think is an important social issue. It's talking about the wage gap. As most of us know, men are typically paid more than women on average. And even though we've made great strides over the years in, in equality and equal pay for equal work, there are still a lot of gaps in the, in the career stream of men versus women on average, uh, and especially at the top in the highest executive levels. But on the other hand, there's the family gap where men uh, are less connected to their families, uh, maybe because of their career paths, uh, and they have less of a support network, and they end up dying younger uh, than women. So there's the family gap and the career gap. And the family gap isn't talked about much, uh, I think, in popular culture. But I think the solution to both of them is common. If we can close the career gap, uh, we can do it by closing the family gap. And that is uh, allowing men to focus more on their families and allowing women to focus more on their careers so that we end up with, without having this uh, pre-existing gender bias that we expect women to take a, you know, months to a year off when they have children. We don't expect men to take any time off. And this is one of those hidden uh, gender biases that uh, I think maintain the wage gap and the career gap. So it's something I wanted to discuss and bring to light. Yeah. And your fifth one was about climate change, right? Yeah. Now this is, uh, I think, uh, an important issue and it's become a, a polarized political football as well. Uh, and it shouldn't be there. There are facts and there are, uh, there is uh, quite a bit of evidence from a scientific standpoint as to what's going on and what needs to be done. And, it, you know, it, it really is uh, probably the major crisis of our times. Um, what's going to happen as we uh, continue to irresponsibly burn fossil fuels. Uh, so I wanted to put together what are the basic uh, mechanisms, give an understanding of the basic facts to anybody who is interested in wading into the debate because I see misconceptions on both sides of the issue being spouted as truth. And I just wanted to say, you know, look, this is what the science says right now. And if you're going to wade into this debate, at least have a basis in facts. Uh, and then I wanted to follow up uh, later on with, uh, with more about solutions. Now, yeah, next, uh, what, I, what I liked about the climate change one was um, you made it very clear um, at the outset the difference between weather and climate because yes. a lot of people don't understand the difference. So, again, you talked about, you know, the example of, you know, that cold snap. It might be really cold uh, for 10, 10, 12 days and people say so much for global warming, right? Yeah. And yeah. There's going to be pockets where uh, there's going to be localized cooling um, but on average, the whole temperature of the environment is going up because there's more energy being stored in the earth system. And, you know, in the wintertime, we have this polar vortex around the North Pole, which used to be you know, confined to, you know, close to the Arctic. It's confined by the jet stream, I think. Uh, and what's happening is because there's more energy in the system, this polar vortex is extending down uh, to more southerly latitudes. So, we're actually getting colder winters here because we're the polar vortex is, is expanding out beyond Ottawa. But what this does is it warms the poles. So there's less focused cold at the North. And, and so the poles are warming two to three times more than the rest of the planet. And this is potentially disastrous because there's lots of frozen methane in the permafrost and under the ocean from decayed matter, uh, decayed organic matter over thousands of years that's been frozen there for forever. And this is all going to bubble to the surface because of heating and it's going to be released from the permafrost. Right now, Siberia is burning because they had a hundred degree temperature and the, the permafrost, which is full of methane, is basically melting and, and it's become a giant barbecue. It's a, and methane is, is, you know, hundreds of times worse as a greenhouse gas than carbon dioxide. And there's in the Arctic permafrost, there's, you know, twice as much carbon dioxide and stored as there is in the atmosphere right now. So if this all gets released, um, it's going to be a, a positive feedback that's going to 
significantly accelerate climate change. And it's something we really wanted to stop before it happened. So, yeah, it's a, it's a, an interesting situation. We live yeah. in interesting times. So that was the climate change one. And then what have been your last couple? So the next one was how to effectively debate creationists. Okay. And this is uh, something that I uh, started out in in university. Um, creationism was, was a big uh, um, political thing at the time, creation versus evolution. And I got involved in that debate in, in university. And, and for many years, I, I followed a news group called Talk.Origins, which was basically a debating forum. And this is one of the places where I started getting interested in science outreach was, was watching the experts uh, debate this. At, at first, you know, I was, you know, tribalized and all for flaming the opposition. And I didn't really add anything to the debate. And I realized that this wasn't helpful behavior. And this is uh, on this forum is where I realized it. And you could see that there were a lot of people just hopping on to say me too. And they weren't adding anything to the conversation. But the experts, the geologists and the biologists and the people where evolution is, is the basic uh, organizing principle in the entire scientific field, without which, you know, nothing that we know about biology would make sense. These people had amazingly um, deep understandings and were able to uh, discuss the issues and present new information that would teach the people that were listening. And I thought, this is what I want to do. This is, I want to learn enough about the debate where I can become useful. And so that's what I did. And then, and I thought, well, I have this background. I would love to, to share it with my listeners because, you know, there's always people learning about this and hearing about it from their isolated echo chamber and, and coming on to, to attack a straw man of the opposition. Right. So I wanted to put together some of the uh, straw man arguments that I'd seen over the years and, that are always being uh, regurgitated on social media. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and then moving on to the next one, which was? Nuclear, the facts as I see them. So nuclear is, this is the one where I discuss solutions to climate change issues. Right. And if you look at the popular debate on how we address uh, decarbonizing uh, the energy system, comes out to fossil fuels versus renewables and and I think it's a a false dichotomy if you were if it, if you have it nuclear I think is not being discussed because um, in popular society it's been discarded as an option and I think that this hasn't been based on the facts but rather on an emotional response to certain events mm-hmm. and I don't think that people are making an apples to apples comparison when they look at these particular events. Um, so when you say an event, are you thinking, for example, the Sendai Tohoku uh, nuclear disaster after the tsunami? Yeah. Yeah. The Fukushima yeah. Um, meltdown and Chernobyl uh, are the two things that are brought up uh, immediately. As soon as you mention the word nuclear power, but I, think that people are misusing these disasters. These are what one would consider the worst case things that could happen to a nuclear power station. One was a, was an explosion, a hydrogen gas explosion, not a nuclear explosion that spread uh, radionuclides. That was Chernobyl. And Fukushima was a meltdown uh, caused by a a magnitude eight uh, offshore earthquake followed by a tsunami that flooded the power station. Uh, And these are actually examples of how safe nuclear power is because in total, about 30 people were killed in these worst case scenarios uh, from radiation poisoning or acute radiation. And most of them were at the Chernobyl. But Fukushima, nobody died as a result of the meltdown. There were several deaths as a result of uh, public fear and the evacuation uh, that followed that, um, but nobody died from the actual uh, accident itself or from the radiation. And it's very difficult to, you know, people will say that 
cancers will, will cause thousands of deaths. But um, the evidence is not clear that that's the case. And in fact, the weight of evidence suggests that over, less than a thousand people will probably die from the uh, radiation released from these two events in total. And if you compare that to other energy forms that we accept as reasonably safe, like uh, coal burning or, or gas burning, you know, we have thousands of people dying every day from the air pollution. And, and the worst thing you can do in nuclear over 50 years of operation and, and providing, you know, over 10% of the global high, uh, electrical power is that, you know, 30 people have died. It seems extremely safe to me. And I don't think this sort of rational response is what most people think of when they think of these, these issues. Yeah. And that, that's what I, again, I appreciate these themes and, and topics that you're, that you're putting out there because it, for the normal person who is not a scientist, uh, I think they can gain a lot of value and insight from listening to these episodes, right? Because it gives them a greater understanding of these things. Um, so in segueing into the last part of the podcast, I want to ask you how you come up with your ideas. So, you know, when I think of my own podcast, I imagine the guests that I want to have on and then I begin to, you know, the, the framework that I use is to really understand them personally and then kind of dive into their professional work uh, through a variety of questions. But for you, how do you come up with the next idea that you want to present and then tell me about um, the research, kind of the behind the scenes stuff that you do to get ready to uh, put the podcast out there. Um, so yeah, just share some of those ideas. Well, so far, um, most of the episodes have been relatively easy. They've come from my experience and issues that I have um, dealt with online uh, and have been arguing um, on social media for quite some time. So. Uh, I have kind of a background in some of these issues. Um, I recently released another podcast uh, just on just a few days ago called Income Inequality. We've botched it. And that one I did a lot of research on because uh, some of them are things that I have background in. Some of them are things that I'm interested in. And I, I feel that, uh, you know, I see these things and they're being held up as uh, left or right issues. And I want to dig into them and understand what the truth is, what, what are the facts? And, and so, you know, I'll spend uh, a good deal of time online, just researching uh, the opposing viewpoints and reading a few of the papers and um, for income inequality, I went to, you know, original sources and, and tried to, you know, get the data. What, what is, uh, you know, what is the gross domestic product? How, how productive are people? What are the, um, what are the statistical um, median incomes being reported over the years? How has this changed? What really is the, the basis in fact? So I did a lot of research on this one. And uh, I thought, okay, these are my ideas. And this is one I you know I, I was a little bit worried about because I'm not a, an economist, right? I'm a physicist. So I'm, I'm worried that, you know, maybe I am, I'm working against a caricature, but you know, I also think that uh, the basic numbers are there and the research holds up. So I wanted to present my interpretation of this and I'm hoping maybe I can follow this up with, with an interview with an expert and, and have them uh, go through my research and, and see where I may have gone wrong or, or back it up because it's really an interesting topic is, uh, and it, it applies to our current society right now. We, we actually have built up an income inequality uh, and we're at a level now that society was last at in about 1920, just before the great depression. Uh, whereas we had a really good, uh, our lowest inequality was around 1970. Uh, Post-war in income inequality went way down. And since 1970, it's been building up again. Uh, more and more um, income has been going to the top 1% uh, and the bottom 
99% you know are roughly have the same amount of wealth as the top 1% of society so that is an unstable situation and uh i'm worried about the the social implications of this uh how it's going to fall out so i thought i would wanted to highlight that so these are mainly issues that i want to highlight that i think are are risks to society and in upcoming um episodes i want to look at vaccine hesitancy uh, this is something that's been identified by the World Health Organization as one of the top 10 health risks to society. And we're seeing this play out in the COVID-19 discussion. You know, people saying 50% of people say they're not going to get a COVID vaccine if it comes out because they're frightened of being microchipped by Bill Gates. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of misinformation out there, and I just want to try to counter some of it. Yeah. Yeah, that sounds that sounds awesome. And um, uh, where can people find you on social media, and uh, where can they find your podcast? So I have a, a Facebook page, um, the Rational View with Dr. Al Scott. It's uh, uh, at Al Scott Rational on Facebook. Um, I also have uh, uh, Instagram, uh, the Rational View with underscores. Um, I have a Twitter account, which is also at Al Scott Rational. And uh, my podcast is on Podbean. It's therationalview.podbean.com. Um, and we're, we're really taking off. We've got, uh, I've got over 400 followers now and uh, uh, over 4,000 downloads. So I'm, I'm really impressed at how fast it's taken off. I'm, I don't know how to quantify that uh, in, in good and bad, but I've been really happy with the, with the response so far. Yeah. I think, again, I think people can really benefit from listening to it. And um, again, I, I, my wife and I'll have a coffee and we'll listen to an episode and I really enjoyed it. And that's why I wanted to have you on the show to give you a platform, just to kind of share your passion for, for the work that you do and to um, share where people can find you on social. So I really hope that the listeners uh, give it a chance because it, it is really interesting work that you're putting out there. Well, thank you very much for, for having this and for helping me to spread the word. It's, it's, it's been fun and I, I hope that it can make a difference. That's, that's you know, why I did this is that I want to make a difference and I want to get the word out on this stuff. Yeah. So yeah, thanks for your time, Al. And just just stay here. I'm going to close off the show and I'll include all your information in the show notes. So everybody, thank you very much for listening to this episode with Dr. Al Scott. And I hope you come back to listen to future episodes. Andy Vassily.